Hey, this is Nate with Purity for Life, and this is the last episode in our series, A Vision of Jesus. Anyone who takes a deep look at Jesus will realize that he was not an ordinary man. He was love, pure, selfless, otherworldly love. And it's this love that drove him, sometimes in ways that we can understand, but other times in ways that really stumble us. So we have to gaze at him until we learn to discern his heart. God is always giving, even when it seems to us he's taking something from us or he's holding back on us. He's always giving. You know, if you had never been around technology or hospitals and you grew up in the bush somewhere, you know, in Australia or Kenya, and then you saw an operation, a cancer operation, where they cut somebody open and take something out of them, you would think just the opposite of what's happening, wouldn't you? How could they torture this person like this, cut them open and take a part of their body out? It looks like he's taking something, but actually he's giving life. Today we'll look at the zealous love of God in Jesus. Stay with us. God bless you. It's so wonderful to be here with you, praising the Lord. To me, this is probably the the closest thing to heaven, (laughs) to be praising the Lord here with all you sinners. (laughs) You know, praising the Lord with old ladies is fun, too. It's it's great, but uh, it's wonderful to be here with you. I couldn't help but think when Pastor Ed was speaking this morning, um, I don't think it's possible for us to be disappointed in heaven, first of all, let me say. But, you know, there's a figure of speech that says it this way, and it, it, it just was so real to me as I was listening to what Ed had to say that if you think eternity is going to be everything you wanted on earth but could never have, you're sadly mistaken. (laughs) There's no disappointment in heaven, but we had better learn to love to worship and to love Jesus. This is heaven practice, what we're doing here this morning. Uh, We're practicing for heaven because this is what it's going to be all about. So don't waste your time here on earth too much with other pleasures. Take the ones God gives you, you know, take the things God gives you and enjoy them because the scripture tells us he's given us all things to enjoy. But just know that this is the time when God wants you to learn to really love to worship Jesus, because we're going to be worshiping Jesus endlessly throughout eternity, and it's going to be our greatest joy. The scripture also came to mind, delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. (laughs) Well, how does that work? (laughs) If we learn to delight in the Lord, then we'll be delighted. That'll be the desire of our heart, and he's going to give it to us. It's very important. It doesn't mean for me, for instance, you know, delight myself in the Lord, and he'll give me a new Triumph Rocket 3. <laughs> that's, that's not it. If you learn to be delighted with Jesus you're going to get the desire of your heart, Jesus. (laughs) And so here on earth is a practice time for us. Um, Again, I just want to start this morning with the most simplistic description of the truth that we're speaking of that you can possibly think of just to, to keep it before us. And the scripture that came to me this morning was the thief. 
He only comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I came not only that you would have life, but that you would have it more abundantly. It's like overflowing life. Not just enough, but so much that you can't hold it and it's running all over and it's pouring out of you and it's getting others. Abundant life. That's what he came to give us. God is a giver. The devil is a taker. (laughs) The thief just steals, but God is a giver. God is always giving, even when it seems to us he's taking something from us or he's holding back on us. He's always giving. I don't think it's possible for God to do anything other than that. Even when God in the scripture is taking a life, he's doing it only because he wants to give life to others. He's taking out of the way what would ruin the lives of others, like a surgeon takes a cancer out of a body. You know, if you didn't understand, if you had never been around technology or hospitals and you grew up in the bush somewhere, you know, in Australia or Kenya, and then you saw uh, an operation, a cancer operation, where they cut somebody open and take something out of them, you would think just the opposite of what's happening, wouldn't you? (gasps) How could they torture this person like this, cut them open and take a part of their body out? It looks like he's taking something, but actually he's giving life. And I've been through that. Um, I've been through that surgery, and I've been through that radiation. And spiritually, if I could just say it this way, we're all in it, but some of us are really in the throes of radiation and chemotherapy right now, (laughs) spiritually. God is radiating us And it seems like we're in pain, and it's trouble, and it's hurtful, but the end is he's actually giving us something. He's taking out of us what's going to destroy us. It's going to spread until it kills us. You know, I had to face that when I had a lymphoma. I had to face it, okay? If something doesn't intervene, I'm going to die. It's going to take me. And I wanted God to miraculously heal me. I didn't want to go through all that. And I think part of it, as I've shared here before, was I've, I'm kind of like Naaman, you know. I, I wanted God to do something great so that I could, you know, um, glorify him and look good while I did it. But he didn't. I had to go through it. And everything went wrong. And it ended up being worse than all the doctors thought. And some of them, the the head of uh, radiation said, I have never in my life seen this happen to anybody. I'm not going to go into the details because it's not public. It's not good uh, public description. You know, you'd all be wanting to run out the door and jump out the windows. But... (laughs) Here I stand before you today whole. (laughs) God can choose to work in our life in whatever way he wants. And um, he chose a, a tougher way for me. And I still today have some of those reminders in my body of what God has done for me. The devil... Even when it seems like he's giving, he's taking. It's just the opposite of God. Seems like he's taking something from you, but he's giving you something all the time. He's a giver. Devil's a taker. That's what happened in the garden. And the presentation of the fall of man in Genesis It's a mind blower, and if you don't come away from it with a lot of questions, you're probably brain dead. (laughs) However, 
there's a tremendous truth that's presented to us there. And it's, it's the simplicity. The devil's always trying to take something from you by pretending that he's giving you something. And God is always giving. Trust him. Trust his work in your life. Trust the spiritual radiation. Trust the spiritual chemo. You can trust Jesus. You can trust the man who died for you. I want to look at John chapter 2 this morning. And there's two accounts here that I want to look at, uh, starting in, in the beginning of John 2. And um, the first one looks like an all-grace account, and the one that immediately follows it, which is in a different place than it is, that's the clearing of the temple, it's in a different place in John than it is in the other Gospels, but I like that because you have one that immediately follows and they both show this beautiful love of God. The first one looks like all grace and the second one kind of looks like all truth. But what I want to do today as we look at the grace of the first and the truth of the second is just look a little bit at the truth of the grace the first one and the grace in the truth of the second one, which looks like a lot of pain and a lot of trouble. The first one is Jesus' first miracle in Canaan, the, the wedding at Cana. I think I'll just read this. It's just 11 verses, so I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the wedding. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, now remember what I said about woman? This was not disrespectful to his mom. Woman, come on, what do I have to do with you? My hour isn't yet come, his mother said to the servants. Whatever he says, just do it. There were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. <laughs> and he said to them, now take it out. Take it to the governor of the feast. That would be like the wedding coordinator today. See what he thinks. So they took it to him. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and he didn't know where it came from. But the servants that drew, they knew where the water came from. And the governor of the feast, he called the bridegroom and he said, everybody at the beginning puts out the good wine. And then... After everybody's, you know, drank for a while, <laughs> they're a little numb. Then they put out the worst stuff. Yeah, nobody knows the difference at that point. But you've kept the good wine until last. <laughs> this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Now, as I have the habit of doing, I just want to do a little portrayal of what this would look like today. Okay? Jesus' mother. Jesus, they ran out of wine. Mom, I can't just start doing miracles now. Yeah, just do whatever he tells you to do. Now this raises um, some very deep theological questions. 
like, should God obey his mom? (laughs) 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 Or is God's mom bossy? Did he change his mind? That's an actual real one. God never has to change his mind. (laughs) He never has to. Well, none of those are really important, neither can I answer them. What's really important in this very first public recorded miracle, at least, we don't know. I mean, it does make you wonder a little bit, what, why did Mary even suggest to Jesus that he ought to do something about this? What did she know, and how did she know it? I don't know. I'm not suggesting anything. It's just a question. But we know for sure that this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry and that this was at least, if not the first, um, if it wasn't the first miracle, it was definitely the first public miracle in the beginning of his ministry. And what he did the best word I can think of was winsome. It was a winsome, beautiful, attractive thing that Jesus did to help this young couple. Now, us, you, good, all of us probably nice non-drinkers here, you know, we might not relate to this And, uh, well, you know, the world, it would be a big deal even in the world now, I guess, if people ran out of of wine. But it would be like running out of food for us at the wedding reception. Uh, And there's still a couple hundred people there. You would be absolutely humiliated. The, The bride and groom, even though it's really probably the fault of the wedding coordinator, you would be absolutely torched. And Jesus did this wonderful grace for them that was sweet and winsome. By the way, did you ever notice, I'm sure you did, that Jesus only did miracles that were mercies to people. He never did miracles to show off or to prove something. The Father, he said, I do what the Father tells me to do. I can't do anything by myself, he even said. I do whatever I see the Father showing me do. He never did a David Copperfield. Like the Pharisees wanted him at times. You know, come on, do a miracle. Do it. Let's, let's see something. Never did it. He never did it to prove anything. He only did miracles that would be a tremendous mercy to people and I just feel so sure that Jesus did some heavy smiling and laughing when he healed some of these people. Like, I just think he was so tickled (laughs) to see people who were doomed, doomed, like lepers. You know, I I had a very holy man (laughs) say to me one time, well, the Bible says Jesus wept, but it never says he laughed or smiled. Give me a break. Most people are born, almost everybody's born with a sense of humor. Did you notice that? <laughs> I, there's a few that aren't, okay? <laughs> and, and that's all right. That's all right. I'm not complaining about that. You're made in the image of God. God is happy, and he loves to make people happy. He loves it. That's what heaven is about. No more tears. No more pain. You're not even going to be, remember the former things aren't going to come into mind, the former pains and troubles. That's what he really wants for you. Don't get mixed up. Here on earth, we're being refined. It's not the end, it's a means. Don't get warped and attached to, oh, i got to have more pain, God. <laughs> Give me some more pain. I know you say, don't worry, I won't. But, <laughs> but listen, people do. 
People do. His ultimate goal for us in eternity is bliss with Jesus. No worrying. No pain. No tears. Not even remembering the horrible things of the past. That's what God really wants. That's more of what we had in the garden. And probably knowing God, <laughs> what we have in the end will be better than what we started with in the garden. Because that's just what he does. Everything in the universe works for God. The most horrible thing that happens in the world immediately begins, God begins to work it for good. Now that's not an excuse for you to do something bad, so don't do it. Now, a firkin, <laughs> isn't that a funny King James word? <laughs> firkin. <laughs> a firkin was 20 to 30 gallons, all right? So what Jesus made was somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine, all right? So he wasn't messing around. <laughs> and Jesus you know just like when he broke the bread and the fish you know he could have made it so that when the last person took the last bite it was gone but he didn't they took up 12 baskets full he made more than enough that's, that's the way God is I know it doesn't always seem like it to us that we feel like, why, do, why is God holding out on me? Why do I have all these problems? Why doesn't he help me? I feel that way sometimes about things, especially my nature. But it's not true. God is this way in his heart. This is just the way he does things. Now, there's some controversy. I'm not going to spend any time on this because I don't know the answer anyway. I don't think it matters. I personally don't care. But there's some controversy about what kind of wine did God make? Did he make the kind of wine that's described in the Psalms that makes glad the heart of man? Okay? The Psalm says something about wine that makes glad the heart of man. Or was it more like Welch's sparkling grape juice? <laughs> you know? I don't know, and I don't care, quite honestly. If Jesus made it, I don't care how he made it. Here's what's important, and just what we need to keep in mind about God. There was plenty, and it was delicious. Okay. And the wine that God really wants to give us for the wedding between us and him, it's it's going to be intoxicating in its own way, not in a worldly way, but in a godly way. <laughs> and it's going to be plenty more than you could imagine, just kind of like the presence of God as we worship him in these meetings. You know, it's just overflowing. It's just filling the place. God is going to be plenty for us, and he is now. He's plenty for us now, and he is delicious. And it tells us something about God. It tells us something about him. He's not an ogre. He's not making arbitrary decisions that are based on how he feels at the particular time. That's what we do. Okay? He's not like you and me, only bigger. Even the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we fathers, even though we love our children, we still do some of the things we do in raising them for our own pleasure. I can't say that my heart is 100% pure when I said to my son, take out the garbage. You know, it wasn't, well, I wasn't necessarily thinking, 
well, this is really good for him, and when he grows up, you know, he'll, this will benefit him. No, I'm just thinking the garbage stinks, and I'm too lazy to take it out, so you take it out. <laughs> That's what you're, you're for. <laughs> I'm really not trying to be funny. I'm not. <laughs> and the Lord reminds us that we, we do that as human beings. But the writer of Hebrews said, God does not do that. It's all for our good. Everything is for our good. He's good. He loves you. Well, in that culture, in the Jewish culture in that day, even today, this would have been one horrible start to the marriage. <laughs> okay? And Jesus saved them from real humiliation. And that was what was in his heart. All of it tells us something about God. But there's something here that we might not think about right away, possibly, that also brings a very important truth to us about all of this, and that is, what were those water pots for, you know? What did they actually do with those? These were the water pots that Jesus and his disciples got criticized about. Remember when Jesus and his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate? Wash your hands before you eat, okay. But they didn't. And they were criticized. Why did not you wash your hands? Because this was a ritual. This was an outward ritual that they went through and they used these water pots. And it wasn't just, you know, and a little soap, you know, let's make sure a hand. It was a ritual. They, they did it a certain way. First they put their hands in and rinse them around. Then they took a, a scoop of some kind and they put their hands up like this and they dumped it down over and they let it run down into the pot. It's kind of why they had to be so big. You know, they let it run down and on this hand. It was a ritual cleansing. Well, Jesus kind of showed them what he thought of their ritual cleansing. Okay? He filled up their holy pots for their holy water with wine for a party. Okay? Now, that's a different side of God than you usually think about. He cared nothing about their outward rituals. Zero. It didn't matter at all. He told the Pharisees once, you know, you clean the outside of the cup and platter, but inside you're full of ravening and wickedness. Another time he told them, if you would just give, the, the King James is alms, but what it means is, in, if you would just give mercy from your heart, everything would be clean to you. Yeah. You wouldn't have to go, around, go through all these, these rituals that you go through trying to be righteous before God. It's outward. It means nothing. It does nothing for your inner man whatsoever. All outward religiosity, it does nothing for the inner man. However, when we cooperate with God and letting Him refine and cleanse our heart, both judicially as well as in reality, you know, I love the song, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. I love those words. He breaks the, the actual power of the judicially canceled sin. He cancels it, but he also wants to break its power. It's not the judicial aspect. It's the reality that proves that you've received the grace of God. Has he broken the power of sin in your life? He can. He will. It might not happen as fast as you want. 
I guarantee it didn't for me. Man, I mean, I'm not trying to complain or be dramatic, but I just want to be honest with you guys. I know some of you probably suffer some bad things. I, I suffered through the effects of sin. I mean, it wasn't all exactly sin, but it was the effects of sin. And I suffered for years with some of it. It was horrible. And we're going to see that in the next account that comes right after this, the sweet, graceful one that Jesus did. But it's more intrusive. But here's the thing. It affects every part of our life. The outward religion does nothing to help your inner life. It might make you look good. Or better. <laughs> it might make you feel better about yourself. It's kind of a, a delusion, but it might. But when we let God have His way, we cry out to Him and we allow Him to cleanse us. And this, this is so much of the everyday life, the daily life, where we allow God to work and it affects every part of us. The inside takes care of the outside. The outside takes care of nothing. Okay, verse 4. Let's look at... Um, right after this, I'll read this, verses 13 to 17 from John. There's another account or two, I think maybe two others of this, and they're more towards the end of Jesus' ministry, but John's got it in the beginning, and there's probably a reason for it. John may have been the latest book written, and many think he was writing to the Gentiles, and he wasn't so interested in the chronology as he was in the content. I don't really know why, and as you there always is. There's different opinions about it, you know. But I like it that it's together. <laughs> I like it in John this way. Because it's the same love in a different form. And both forms are needed in our lives. You know, sometimes you really need God to put his arms around you and comfort you. You know, you really need that reassurance. You need a brother in the Lord even sometimes, don't we? It's helpful. Even those of us who aren't huggers, you know. Um, if somebody puts their arm around our shoulder and just shows us some kindness what in some way, we need that. And sometimes we need the Louisville slugger. You know, I need it all the time. I've kind of felt it here this weekend. It's been wonderful. Slug away. Here, the Lord, um, I, would, I would say about this first one, he shows, he shows his, his truth so gracefully, and the second account, I'd say, he shows his grace so truthfully. It's just beautiful. Um, I'll start reading at verse 13 of John 2. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. You might think, wow, how could he do this right after that wedding? <laughs> but the Gospels are very condensed, and it may not have been immediately. He said unto them that sold doves, take these things out of here and don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Or what it means is the zeal for the house of God has consumed me. 
I'm just filled with this zeal for the house of God. Now, first of all, as we said sometime this weekend, you know, when we look at this, we think, well, you look here, Jesus loses it just like me. He lost it. He saw this stuff and he lost it. No, God never loses it. He has a controlled purpose. You might notice that just like, <laughs> I'm being facetious, okay, but just like us, when somebody pulls out in front of us, the first thing we think of is, you know, I think I'm going to take a half hour and make a scourge. <laughs> is that what you do? No, in the BC days, we, we gave the silver salute, I know. But we lose it sometimes. There, what is it about automobiles? I mean, every part of driving a car, I think it's, it must be that feeling of power, you know? And nobody get in my way, you know? I think, why in the world is that guy making me slow down, turning left? Why is he turning into his driveway? I'm on the road behind him, doesn't he know that? Yeah, we just, it gives us this, this feeling, you know, that we own everything, I think, and we get so upset. It's, it's ridiculous, but Jesus had a controlled purpose. He saw what was going on, and he said, we're going to fix this. We're going to fix this. So he made a scourge. And the disciples remembered when he was doing this. It was his zeal for the house of God. And, and what I want to remind you, of course, we're the house of God now, and God has a great zeal for you. He has a great zeal, and it's for us. Sometimes it feels like it's against us when he comes into the house. We're also the temple of God now, aren't we? We are the temple. We're the house of God now. And God has to come in sometimes and clear out all the commotion, all the noise, all the things that keep us from being a house of prayer. But his zeal is for us, not against us. His zeal is against what's ruining our lives, what's keeping us from having a peaceful and worshipful and quiet relationship with God on the inside. We're full of noise. We're like a pinball machine. And it's not conducive to the presence of God or to prayer. His zeal is for us and against the commotion. In one of the other Gospels on this account, he says that they remembered that it was written that he, his house was a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. Okay. Now what was going on here in the temple, it wasn't the temple proper, it was a temple enclosure. And in this part of the temple enclosure, it was the only place that non-Jews were allowed to come. Okay. Gentiles. Most of us here, maybe all of us. Gentiles. It was the only place they were allowed to be. And what they were doing was they were filling that place up and making it impossible for people to come and find the presence of God and pray there. Non-Jews. And it was worse than that. Bible commentators will tell you, and I'm not sure how they know it, and I'm not sure even if they know it, but they'll say that Caiaphas had, this was the business of the high priest, and the priests, we do know for sure that the priests were the wealthy, aristocratic ones. All the priests were very aristocratic and wealthy. And he had a business going, and, and what they were actually doing was when the people brought in their sacrifices to offer, whether it was you know, a goat or a sheep or even doves for the poor ones, they were 
you know, the sacrifices had to be perfect. They had to be, not have a blemish. But they would always find something wrong with the ones they bought outside. And they would make them buy one from them. And they would have to buy it at exorbitant prices. So they were ripping off the people in the temple. And they were making all this commotion in the temple. And there was nowhere for them to find the presence of Jesus and to pray. Jesus was so intensely burdened that his temple would be a place of prayer. And he is so burdened for you and I. He so wants our inner being to not be full of merchandising, not be filled with distractions and noise, money-making ideas, but that we would be a peaceful, quiet place where his presence could dwell. In one of the other Gospels, it also adds this at the end. After he threw them all out, it says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them there. That was the whole point. <laughs> that was his zeal, that the temple would be that kind of a place. God's, what God is against, if I can say it this way, is always in the context of what he's for. In other words, God wouldn't be against anything if it wasn't destroying what he's for. Even his wrath is in the context of his mercy. Again, like a surgeon, He's, he's got a wrath and a zeal against that cancer only because it's ruining the life of his patient. He's also like a pathologist, and this also reminds me of having cancer, because they have to find out, is this really cancer? And the only one who knows and can make the decision of whether this thing, you know, once when cancer's in your body, um, you either have to kill it or you have to remove it. Once it turns to a certain point, you can't do anything with it. And only the pathologist can determine that, whether it's reached the point where you can't leave it now, it's got to be taken out. Something's got to happen to destroy that, or it's going to take over everything and destroy everything. That's kind of like what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah had reached the cancer point. It couldn't be changed. It had to be taken out. And if it wasn't, it was going to spread the whole earth because this is what sin does. Yeah. It's like a cancer. Only God knows when things turn. Whether it's a whole nation, a whole city, a small group, or something in us that has to be removed. It's cancerous. It's a sinful, cancerous thing. Only God can determine it. He's the pathologist. He's the surgeon. He's the nurse that nurses you back to health. He's all of it. And you can trust him. Because he has a zeal for us. He wants to get all the noise and all the commotion and all the things in us that are wrong, get them out of our lives. And he wants this temple to be a place where the lame and the blind of the world can come and find Jesus, where they can find healing. Some of you are becoming that. Some of you have become like that. I get it from being here. <laughs> I get it, I, I feel blessed, I feel healed, I feel enlightened, I've seen the Lord, I've heard him speak to me here today through some of you. I've been reminded where I need some help. And it's because you're allowing God to come in and work in your hearts. You're letting him come in and throw stuff around. <laughs> 
around and say, well, it's Jesus. Who cares? You know, it's turmoil and it's trouble. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> well, it's Jesus. <laughs> so what? <laughs> he only does good. His, he has a zeal for you that you cannot imagine. What do you think would have happened if Jesus would have gone into the temple and said, you know, guys, I, would you mind, you know, just kind of moving this stuff out of here today? I, I want to come in and heal some people and they need to pray. The poor Gentiles, you know, they don't even, they don't even know what's, would you, I don't think they would have even heard him. I don't think they would have noticed him. Jesus knew this. He knows it about us. I'm telling you, this happens to me all the time. I know God. I can see it in hindsight. Oh, the Lord has been trying to tell me this. I wasn't listening. You know, he, he tried to do it nice. He was nice at first. David, don't think like that. Don't, don't go there. Be careful. David, don't. Don't be bitter against your wife. Careful, don't get angry. But there's so much commotion and noise, and I haven't taken the time I need, maybe that day, to get quiet before God and to listen and hear what he's trying to tell me. And before I know it, he doesn't have any choice but to come in and start throwing stuff. <laughs> And, you know, all we see is the doves are flying up in our face and the money's flying across the floor and the tables are making noise. And then we're like, oh, oh, why wasn't I listening to Jesus? I love the term in the scripture, walk softly before the Lord. I love that term. He walked softly before the Lord. Take off your boots and walk softly and listen to the Lord because he wants to cleanse us and make this inner part of our, our being a place where Jesus can dwell. He wants to make it a peaceful place where others can sense the presence of God and sense that you're safe and know that they can come and find help and grace and truth in time of need. God wants to make you a temple full of the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God. And he wants the blind and the lame to be able to come to you. And he wants to be the Prince of Peace in your heart. The Prince of Peace. I guess if I could put it in a few words, just to end the weekend, I would say, please, please trust Jesus and his work in your life. Give yourself to Jesus. There'll be times when it's painful and it's hard and you'll have to repent a lot. Yes. But in the end, you're going to be tearless. You're going to be pure. And you're going to have eternal joy and pleasure with Jesus. Pleasure is not a four-letter word. <laughs> it's not a bad word. God designed it. He made it. But we've got to have it in the right place and in the right way. He wants to fill your lives with pleasure. Just not carnal, fleshly pleasure. But he wants to teach us how to delight ourselves in the Lord so that we can have the desires of our heart. God bless you. Jesus loves you. Please believe it. Please understand.
what love is, its grace and its truth. I think that it's difficult to define why a series like this is so important for a person in sexual sin, and I'm really not sure that I can do it justice, but here's what I want to say. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's a consuming fire of love, he's a jealous God, and we need that. We need him. He is the only one that can deliver us, but he delivers us by the truth of who he is. How is an idol going to deliver us from our lusts? Or how is some version of Jesus that we conjure up in our mind going to have any kind of power to free us from the sin that's enslaved us? We need the real Jesus to come into our lives, right into the middle of our sins and depravities. We need him to bring the fullness of his grace and the fullness of his truth to us, no matter what it means and no matter what it costs us. Listen, I've been doing this for 14 years, and I've seen plenty of men refuse to allow Jesus as he truly is to come into their lives, and guess what happens? They never change, because only the real Jesus can set us free. And so I guess I'm saying all of this because he promises that if we seek him with all of our hearts, we'll find him as he is. That finding process can be really hard because what we find is a God that we can't control, a God that we can't always understand, and a God that we can't contain. And he comes to us with the fire of his love and the beauty of his grace, and he encounters us. And in that encounter, something radical happens inside of us because his reality is coming to us. I don't really know if I explained that well, but what I hope is that this gives you a hunger to know him in a real way because he is life eternal. That's it for this episode of Purity for Life. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.